BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst, Glenn Kirshner. After the Trump election fraud grand jury in Georgia released their report with recommendations on indictments, many prosecutors are now saying it looks like Trump will be indicted. Here's Glenn. So friends, I want to talk today about a new piece that just ran in the New York Times that counsels America to brace itself for a Trump indictment. The piece was authored by two former federal prosecutors, E. Donya Perry and Amy Lee Copeland, and one former special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee, Norman Eisen. And the article begins by quoting a line from the report that was recently issued by the special grand jury in Georgia. Quote, we find by unanimous vote that no widespread fraud took place in the Georgia 2020 presidential election that could result in overturning that election, close quote. With those words, the Fulton County Special Grand Jury's report, part of which was released Thursday, repudiated Donald Trump's assault on our democracy. We need to prepare for a first in our 246-year history as a nation, the possible criminal prosecution of a former president. If Mr. Trump is charged, it will be difficult and at times even perilous for American democracy, but it's necessary to deter him and others from future attempted coups. Fawny Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, may present the case as a simple and streamlined one or in a more sweeping fashion. Success is more likely assured in the simpler approach But the fact that the redacted report has eight sections suggests a broader approach is conceivable. In either event, we must all prepare ourselves for what could be years of drama with the pretrial, trial, and appeal likely dominating the coming election season. So friends, I want to follow up on two assertions by the authors. First, that success is more likely if D.A. Fawny Willis goes with a, a simpler approach. Maybe. But let me tell you what my experience was in my 30 years as a federal prosecutor when it came to prosecuting cases or having to decide whether to prosecute cases using a more complex, more involved approach like in a RICO case, racketeer influence and corrupt organizations, a big conspiracy case against a whole bunch of people, against an enterprise or an organization, versus the simpler approach, the streamlined approach, what I always referred to as the standalone case. So 
First of all, when you are prosecuting a standalone case, what do I mean by a standalone case? One crime or one marquee crime. For example, in a murder case, you might have a defendant who might have been part of a larger group, maybe a conspiracy, and maybe that defendant had committed not only one murder, but was suspected of multiple murders or other crimes of violence that perhaps did not result in murder, perhaps some narcotics crimes, perhaps some firearms offenses, and you had to make the decision, do I just bring the murder charge, focus like a laser beam, present a simpler case to the jury, or do I try to pull in a whole bunch of other crimes, potentially a whole bunch of other defendants, into one prosecution and present the whole ball of wax, a much bigger endeavor, more complex endeavor, more challenging endeavor. That, it looks like, is one of the decisions District Attorney Willis has to make. Perhaps she's already made it. So when you bring that standalone case, that one charge or just one marquee charge case, what happens? Well. First of all, the defense attorney or the defense team will focus like a laser beam on that one charge, trying to do everything to knock it down. That's the job of a defense attorney is to zealously represent their client and try to defeat the government's case, try to undermine the evidence, try to persuade the jury that the prosecutors have not proved guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and they will focus like a laser beam on that one charge. And when you bring a standalone case, one charge case, the jury is deprived of context. They don't know anything more about what the defendant might have been doing as part of a criminal group, as part of a conspiracy, what other crimes the defendant may have been involved in. They just know about that one little isolated sliver of a crime that the prosecutors are trying to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. But if you can properly bring a larger case, a big conspiracy case, a RICO case against an organization or an enterprise that engages in a series of criminal offenses, what we call a pattern of racketeering activities, if you can do that, now you can't overreach, you have to have the evidence to do it, if you can do that, you give the jury the power of context. They can learn appropriately based on the evidence that this wasn't just one person doing this one thing in isolation and perhaps as an aberration, this is a pattern. This is part of, of a crew, of a conspiracy, of an enterprise, of an organization that is involved in committing crimes as a corrupt organization. That sure looks like what Donald Trump and his criminal associates, his co-conspirators, were involved in, not just committing one crime, soliciting election fraud, give me 11,780 votes, Secretary of State Raffensperger, and corruptly declare me the winner. Yes, that was one crime, but boy, it was one in a series of crimes, a pattern of criminal activity that was operating on lots of fronts. And so if you can bring it all together and give the jury the power of context, 
you know, a full appreciation of the criminal conduct of Donald Trump and his criminal associates. I happen to believe, in my experience, having tried more than 50 standalone murder cases and multiple big RICO cases and other conspiracy cases that weren't necessarily RICO cases, they were smaller, more modest, didn't involve a whole criminal organization or enterprise, maybe just two, three, four, five co-conspirators. I've seen how both of those prosecutions play out, and what I will tell you, almost every time, we had a far greater likelihood of success, and indeed, a far greater rate of success, when we brought the bigger, more complex, more involved case because it gave the jury the power of context. So, it may be that a more streamlined, more narrowly focused, simpler case is the way to go. Maybe that has a greater likelihood of success in holding Donald Trump accountable for at least some sliver of his criminal activity, but I'm not so sure. I tend to believe the larger, more complex, more involved case, perhaps involving multiple charges, multiple defendants, and the use of Georgia state RICO laws is the better way to go. And in fact, the authors of the article note later on about how Fawny Willis has used the Georgia RICO laws in the past. Here's how that passage reads. Miss Willis has a proven propensity for bringing and winning RICO cases. As we have learned in our criminal trial work, sometimes juries are more responsive to grander narratives that command their attention and outrage and give the juries the power of context. So I couldn't agree more. It feels to me like the larger, more involved, perhaps RICO prosecution is the way to go. And District Attorney Fawny Willis has a proven track record of success in bringing and winning RICO cases. So friends, let me take on just one other assertion in the New York Times piece and we'll finish with this. The authors say, we must all prepare ourselves for what could be years of drama with the pretrial, trial, and appeal likely dominating the coming election season. Oh, we're prepared. We're battle-tested. We survived the Trump presidency. We survived four years of a corrupt, criminal, presidential cabal. Oh, we're prepared. Bring it on. Because justice matters. Coming up next, the defamation lawsuit against Fox News by Dominion Voting Systems has brought to light how their hosts and guests knew they were perpetuating the big lie in real time. How can we combat this behavior in the future? This is Justice Matters. Hi, Beowulf here with Justice Matters, and I'm here to remind you about one of the best decisions I've made recently, getting Factor Meals. Eating is so much easier for me with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. 
you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up today and save. I've done the math and I can tell you Factor is less expensive than takeout. And every meal is dietitian approved, nutritious and delicious. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and start meeting your meal and nutrition goals. Head over to factormeals.com slash glen50 and use code glen50 to get 50% off. That's code glen50 at factormeals.com slash glen50 to get 50% off. Remember, go to factormeals.com slash glenn 50 and use code glen50 to get 50% off today. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Some Fox News anchors have been caught lying in their emails and on-air reporting about election fraud. What can the government do about these media lies that create divisiveness and harm our democracy? Here's Glenn. So friends, it's been a few days since the news broke that some of the Fox Network anchors have been caught. They've been caught in their own words, in their own internal email communications, caught lying to their viewers lying to the American people about alleged election fraud in the 2020 presidential election. And those emails demonstrate that they knew they were lying. You know, I wanted to take a few days. I wanted to sit with this story before doing a Justice Matters video about it. I want to start today with the New York Times reporting about these emails, these internal communications being revealed. Headline, Fox stars privately expressed disbelief about election fraud claims, calling them crazy stuff. The comments by Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and others were released as part of a defamation suit against Fox News by Dominion Voter Systems. And that article begins, newly discovered messages and testimony from some of the biggest stars and most senior executives at Fox News revealed that they privately expressed disbelief about President Donald J. Trump's false claims that the 2020 election was stolen from him, even though the network continued to promote many of those lies on the air. The hosts, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and Laura Ingram, as well as others at the company, repeatedly insulted and mocked Trump advisors, including Sidney Powell and Rudolph Giuliani, in text messages with each other in the weeks after the election, according to a legal filing on Thursday by Dominion Voting Systems. 
Dominion is suing Fox for defamation in a case that poses considerable financial and reputational risk for the country's most watched cable news network. And friends, here are some of those internal Fox messages. Quote, Sidney Powell is lying, by the way. I caught her. It's insane, Mr. Carlson wrote to Miss Ingram on November 18th, 2020. Miss Ingram responded, Sidney is a complete nut. No one will work with her. Ditto with Rudy. Mr. Carlson continued, our viewers are good people and they believe it, he added, making clear that he, Carlson, did not. So friends, think about that. They were feeding these lies to the viewers. They knew they were lies. They knew the viewers believed those lies, but they kept doing it anyway. Why? Well, for ratings, for profit. And friends, these lies they were telling to their viewers, they weren't any old lies. You know, they weren't lying to their viewers about which toothpaste will make their teeth whiter, which soap powder will get their clothes cleaner. They were lying, telling their viewers that their vote had been stolen, their election was rigged, their president was being unlawfully taken from them. You know, figuratively speaking, these Fox anchors were packing the kegs with gunpowder, giving Donald Trump the opportunity to strike the match on January 6th and the whole thing exploded into imminent violence at the U.S. Capitol, designed to do what? Designed to stop the certification of Joe Biden's election win. You know, friends, Fox probably should have settled before all of these lies were exposed, all of these dangerous lies, these incendiary lies. You know, maybe they could have retained some minimal shred of credibility but frankly, I care less about how much Fox will have to pay Dominion voting systems for defaming them, which they clearly did. I care more about what our federal government will do with these faux news networks, these faux news organizations that knowingly feed the American people these incendiary lies, these explosive lies lies that are reasonably likely to incite imminent lawlessness, reasonably likely to incite violent conduct. In fact, they may have even been calculated or intended to do exactly what they did, incite violence on January 6th. What is our federal government going to do to address it so this situation doesn't happen again and again and again because these faux news networks are still out there peddling lies. You know, friends, the federal government is not a potted plant. The executive branch has some power, has some authority to try to protect the American people against harm. We have the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. They can promulgate regulations designed to get at this intentionally false and dangerous speech being broadcast by these faux news networks. We have the president with the power of the executive order. He can craft and sign executive orders 
designed to get after faux news organizations that are knowingly, intentionally broadcasting lies about fundamental rights of the American people, like whether their vote was stolen or not, whether elections were rigged or not. Language that they are broadcasting, knowing them to be lies, when those lies are reasonably likely to inspire lawless conduct, when those lies are reasonably likely to incite imminent violence. The federal government is not a potted plant. The federal government can regulate, the president can pass executive orders, and I know people will say, wait, 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 First Amendment, free speech, we can't do anything about faux news organizations intentionally and knowingly broadcasting lies that are likely to inspire lawless conduct. Yes, we can. You know, friends, here's the thing. No, we don't want to trample on anybody's free speech rights. And we know the protections of the First Amendment in the free speech arena are broad and sweeping, but they're not unlimited. And frankly, they should be revisited. You know how we revisit them? The federal government, the executive branch, through its agencies, promulgates common sense regulations designed to put a stop to intentionally false speech by faux news organizations when that speech is reasonably likely to incite imminent lawless action. We pass regulations trying to get at that problem. President Biden signs executive orders trying to get at that problem. And the legal challenges will come to those regulations and those executive orders. Bring them on. We should welcome the, the challenges in the courts. We should be willing to go into the courts and fight for the American people by taking a position that these were thoughtfully crafted regulations and executive orders. The administration has a lot of deep thinkers, a lot of constitutional scholars available to help craft these narrowly tailored regulations and executive orders. Let the legal challenges come. We can't be afraid to try to be forward-leaning in this day and age of extreme danger to our democracy. You know, we have to embrace the challenge. Just think for a minute, friends about what the Trump administration did with executive orders. Now, let me tell you, I did a long discussion of this on my audio podcast, also coincidentally called Justice Matters. It just posted this episode, and you can get it, as they say, wherever you ordinarily get your podcasts. And I talk about the need to take on this challenge. Not shy away from it, because legal challenges will be brought to these regulations and these executive orders. We should welcome it. We should embrace those legal challenges. I call this the RLL, approach to intractable problems, whether it's gun violence or hate speech designed to incite violence. RLL, we regulate, we legislate, and then we litigate and we welcome the litigation. Now, the legislation piece, it's not all that vibrant at the moment, given the slim majority that the uh, Republicans have in the House, but we'll get back to being able to legislate in a couple of years. The RLL, regulate, legislate, and then litigate. You know what Trump did? 
Trump used the executive orders, the power of the executive orders for evil. What was the first thing he did upon taking office? Within, I think, 10 days, he signed his first hateful Muslim ban. He wanted to ban people from coming to America because of who they are or because of their national origin or because of the religion they practice. He wanted to ban them, his hateful Muslim ban. So he signed an executive order. And what happened? It got challenged in court and it got blocked. So he took it back and he reworded it and he retooled it together with the help from his hateful cabal and he promulgated a second one and it got blocked in the courts. He did it a third time and I believe it got blocked. It took four times for him to get his hateful Muslim ban, banning people from seven Muslim majority countries from coming to America just because of the religion they practice. And he found five conservatives on the Supreme Court who were apparently just as hateful as him. And they finally passed, they affirmed that fourth hateful Muslim ban. But I think we need to take a page from the Trump administration playbook. You try an executive order that is carefully and narrowly crafted and you promulgate it and then you go into court and you defend it. And if you lose, you learn the lessons from the judge, from the court, when they strike down the regulation or the executive order as maybe, you know, stepping a toe over the constitutional line and you rework it and you let the next challenge come and you go back and you defend it. We can use executive orders and regulations for good the way the Trump administration used them for evil. They weren't afraid to lose in court and they kept trying until they could get their hateful ban pushed through the courts. Why can't we do the same thing trying to protect the American people, use the executive order and the power of the regulation for good, and then go into court and defend it. Because if we win in court, well, then the American people win. If we lose in court, we retool, we rework, we redraft the regulation or the executive order, and we go back into court again. And eventually, we're going to convince the judges, we're going to convince the courts that what we're doing in the arena of you know, hate speech and false speech that is likely to incite imminent lawlessness and gun violence, right? unfettered access to assault rifles and weapons of war, we can, we can pass executive orders and enact regulations and then go into court and fight them. And we can do it for good. And in this day and age, we can't just sit back and say, First Amendment, so we will do nothing and we will let the foe news organizations continue to intentionally spew their lies, inspiring imminent lawless conduct by their viewers. We can't just sit back and do nothing. And we can't be afraid of somebody challenging the steps that we take to try to protect the American people. Bring it on. Bring on the court challenges. Because justice matters. And friends, I want to give a quick shout out of thanks to two people. Professor Lester Reams, who has been helping me with the RLL project, Regulate, Legislate, and Litigate. And to our friend Jamel, who created the RLL logo that I used in today's Justice Matters video. Two 
terrific Team Justice members. And it takes a team, friends. Team Justice. Friends, as I say, I do a much deeper dive on this topic in my audio podcast. The long-form episode drops on the weekend, and the one discussing the RLL approach to intractable problems, regulate, legislate, and litigate, is in the the most recent weekend long-form podcast that just posted in the last 24 hours. So if you want more information, you want to hear me prattle on even longer about this topic, yeah, I feel strongly about it. You know, this is our democracy, mine, yours, our kids, our grandkids, our friends, our neighbors, our communities. So yeah, it's worth prattling on about. Friends, as always, please stay safe, please stay tuned, and I look forward to talking with you all again soon. For more on Glenn, go to Glenn Kirshner 2 on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. This is Justice Matters.